once again into the soccer OG. Hey, that's me, Max Paretos. This is episode 71. As always, we like to remind you, a gentle reminder at that, to rate, review, download, subscribe, and tell a friend. I, I got a tweet this week, and I forgot the name of the gentleman's name, but he's a top dude, and I just my brain's not working right now, but I'll remember it. But he showed me his five-star review to me on Twitter. So I'm challenging you all to do that. Actually, I'm not challenging you. I will be giving something away. I, I don't know what, but I'll have a some sort of sweepstakes. So show me your rating. It doesn't have to be five-star, but obviously if it is five-star, it's going to help your chances of winning to my Twitter at Max Bredos Sports. we got to get those rates and reviews up. Once we get past that threshold, we can really move in to bigger and better things. And if you're listening to this podcast with some regularity, then why not leave uh, a rating or a review? Sorry, I have to resort to this. I'm sorry. <laughs> we got a great program this week. I will be joined from Germany by the great Derek Ray. I'm a soccer OG. If I'm a soccer OG, Derek is the supreme leader soccer OG. Uh, what an incredible history he's had covering the sport in this country and very looking forward to that conversation. In stoppage time, we'll get you ready for the USA-Morocco game. A few things in peace. I think with regards to that game, the less discussions, the less conflict, whatever you want, controversies, if we even have something like that, the better. We've got to be talking about the World Cup, but we'll get into that. It's a fine test for the United States, and we'll be discussing that in stoppage time. We put a bow on all the big games in Europe, Champions League, Liga MX, everything behind us. Now what do we do? You listen to the soccer OG. Let's go. <laughs> I am really happy to be with you this week because I didn't think I would be. Don't, don't get alarmed. Everything's okay. So I travel to Miami. I go my, LA, Miami, LA. I shouldn't. I'm, I'm letting you guys in on this. And I go sometimes for a day and I come back to cover Libertadores, to cover US Open Cup, to cover Combate Global. And I fly American because they have the most flights. I know I talked, I know I talked about this last week, but it happened again. <laughs> I sat on a flight and it got canceled. It's terrifying. And the honesty from the pilot is also just uncomfortable. Well, we, we, oh, he, I was told they overflowed the gas tank this week. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> it did, But I appreciate, I, you know what? I don't appreciate the honesty. Don't tell me. All of this is happening. It's a weird time in air travel. So if you're out there, uh, my condolences. It's one thing to, to miss out on business travel, but I feel really bad. I saw a lot of families in the Miami airport who are losing a day, if not more, of their vacation, and that stinks. That stinks. I have a vacation coming up. I'm going to talk to Derek Ray about that. I'm going to Copenhagen, Hamburg. This is the plan. Copenhagen, Hamburg, Berlin, Amsterdam. It's me, my wife, and my son. So we're going to try and do that and get the most out of it in eight days. I should have got an extra day. I don't know why I'm rushing back, but that's my personality. I always rush back. I want to tell a story on uh, American Airlines. <laughs> so my flight was canceled. I was in Miami. I went back to the hotel with Combate Global, and they, it was fine. And they So my flight was Sunday night. I was going to get back in Monday morning. They put me on a flight that left Tuesday, so the whole day, which in Miami doesn't sound bad, but I need to get home because I want to do the podcast. 
I want to. I want to be here with you guys. I'm sorry. Does that sound weird? I'd rather be here with you than sitting in my speedos. I don't wear speedos in Miami Beach with a cocktail, enjoying the sights and the sounds. I'd rather be here with you. It's important work. <laughs> so I, I, you know, an American that you call them and they say we we can't take your phone right now. We can call you back between an hour and a half and two and a half hours. I'm like, all right, I'm not sitting on this phone for an hour and a half. So someone calls me back in like two and a half hours and tells me. Okay, well, I call him. I go, hey, look, I, I don't want to leave Tuesday. Can I get on standby? Well, he goes, you have you have Buku Miles. You have seniority on American, so you have a good shot. And then I go, will I get on there? I, I haven't really flown standby. And then I talked to him because his name was, when he said at the beginning, his name was Jose. And he sounded Cuban. And I go, Jose, where are you from? He goes, oh, I'm a Cuban from Miami. Which I figure American has a lot of Miami employees, so he was one. So we started talking. I go, can I get on the standby? And he goes, dude, he actually said, bro, um, you know Latinos, man. They're late all the time. They miss their connections, and, they'll, and you have a really good shot because people won't show up for the flight. I go, can you say that? I mean, this is a recorded line, dude. It's okay to say that to me. We can't, we can't crush all Latinos. Sure enough, I went to the airport, and I got on standby, lickety split. So there it is. There's a lot to cover. I don't know. I, let's talk about the Champions League. It was extremely compelling. And I know it's hard to talk about the game. when We talk about the organizing. I don't know what's going on in Europe with uh, the stadiums. I don't know. There's a, a huge flaw in what's happening because we saw it with the promotion games in England where fans struck athletes or the athletes had to get off the field. And then, I don't know, I'm sure most of you saw it by now, the... the uh, it was immediate. It was planned. In the penalty shootout between Saint-Étienne and Auxerre, as soon as the penalty shootout went out, it was like a scene of apocalypse now. It was like, bah, 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 bah. It was basically, it was basically a, a general in an army going, charge! At the exact second that penalty went in, or, or I don't know if it was in or missed, all hell broke loose. And there's just some entitlement going on with these fans that needs to be pulled back in a big way. I don't know if these leagues are like, oh, you can do what you want. Fans are, look, fans of them, we, we realize how important supporters are with the pandemic. Without fans in the stands, this game does, is, has no shot. That's the best part of it to me. It, it amplifies the great play and everything. If it was a great play, you wouldn't, it wouldn't feel as good without fans reacting in some way, shape, or form. So, Needless to say, we, we owe the fans everything, but you've got to peel back a little bit or a lot. This is getting alarming with all of this. And then you had what happened at the Stade de France um, with the fans not being allowed in, in a, a timely manner. The Liverpool fans were reacting in a horrible way. And you, you saw something you never did with the game being delayed. It was like 40 minutes. Everyone had to tap dance. And I would watch the game on CBS. I'd watch the game on N. And nobody knew what was going on, which is even more disturbing. It's like, you got to kind of let people in. This is an, an international broadcast. And then they had the, the, pre, the pre-game show with Camila Cabello. Camila Cabello, who uh, fellow Cubana, so we, look, we, we support her. And it was weird when it happened. But I know a lot of people were upset. And the, the Liverpool fans, it was, I, it was... I'm not trying to single out the Liverpool fans, but uh, the news... Reports said it was Liverpool fans that were jeering her during the performance. 
I'm sure there were some Real Madrid fans too, but it was the Liverpool fans who were upset. They have every reason to be upset with what's happening out here. And she sent a tweet saying, and she later deleted that tweet, I can't believe they're singing their song, which was ridiculous at the time. But I just want to say something. Look, I tweeted something about that, and everyone's, they're Americanizing the Champions League final. This Americanizing this, the Americanizing that is embarrassing, okay? It's not Americanizing anything. You see this in the World Cup. You see this in the Olympics. I mean, I saw the Olympics, the London Olympics, and I had to sit there as Take That sang for 20 minutes. No one knows who Take That is. Nobody knows who Take That is. I know no one in that stadium, Liverpool fans, who Camila Cabello is. I don't know who Take That is, but they sang for 20 minutes at the London Olympics. And I sat there nodding my head going, oh, great. But I didn't complain because I knew it was about the show. And these games have to be about the show. So even though it was, it was poorly executed and she was put behind an eight ball because of this huge delay, that has to go on. I don't know what they paid her, but can you imagine telling Camila Cabello, we're, we're canceling your show, sorry. It doesn't work that way. And it's not Americanization. Everything wants entertainment because you are a football fan. I'm a football fan, soccer. But this sport, in order to draw fans, by now you should know that they're going to bring in entertainment that you may see unfit for the game. Well, your opinion and my opinion doesn't matter on this because this is the way it is. It's a moneymaker. You, uh, you draw new fans. Let me tell you something. Uh, when you look about what was the biggest trending part of that game, her performance is probably right up there. Other than the, uh, the goal by Vinicius Jr., and uh, I can't, I'm not going to pile on Trent Alexander-Arnold. I will say it wasn't an isolated incident. There was like three moments where he got burnt pretty badly and his defensive wherewithal, which has always been in question, uh, came up again. So I, I think about that because the United States, and I don't think USA is going to be running with England. So it's not going to be, it's going to be competitive. It's not going to be close. I say England wins that game 3-1, but maybe there's something they can exploit. But Trent Alexander-Arnold, Alexander as you see the U.S. media, does get a pass on a lot of these things. But he got absolutely grilled. And it wasn't just on the Vinnie goal. Whew. Uh, Derek Ray's coming up. Very excited about that. Uh, I will be uh, on my Soccer OG on YouTube following the USA-Morocco game on Wednesday night. So check us out there. Check out the Soccer OG on YouTube whenever you can. We'll talk about USA-Morocco here later today in stoppage time. Liga MX Atlas back to back. What an incredible story. And I'm sorry I'm looking at this through an MLS perspective. And I'm licking my chops. And all due respect to Atlas. But after Seattle won the CONCACAF Champions League, I'm immediately thinking Atlas is going to be in the CONCACAF Champions League for Mexico. Pachuca's going to be there. Who else? Is it Leon? Leon's going to be there. So you avoid Monterrey, Tigres, America, Cruz Azul. One of those teams will get in there. Le MLS is going to win another CONCACAF Champions League. I'm not guaranteeing it, but they're going to. That's not a guarantee. I'm just saying they're going to. So uh, that was something. I mean, I'd less, I, I'll probably eat my words, but those, that's a team that's going to obviously, by the time a CONCACAF Champions League runs around, is going to find the same limitations of MLS teams with roster size. They're not a superstar team. They can't afford luxury players. They can't. Neither can Pachuca. They got to keep it close to the vest. Neither can Leon. 
Leon is leaning in on some older players. They're going to lose, uh, what's his name, Meneses. So Leon is going to come down a notch. So MLS has a really good opportunity. We'll see, I mean, I know it's very far away, but that's how my brain thinks, unfortunately. That's how it does. Nottingham Forest, back into the Premier League. Had to sit there and watch Huddersfield Town, Nottingham Forest. Saw Huddersfield, Notts County. It's a, uh, you just sit there and I'm not going to ridicule these playoffs because I really enjoy them. But you live in fear about these teams in the Premier League. And I know they're going to get some money. And Nottingham Forest is a big, is well supported. They'll spend money and they'll, I think they'll do all right. But you get, if Huddersfield made it, you're like, how, what, what, what's going to happen to them? Put, hide the women and children. So, uh, it's a fine line. It was a goal. It was a contra. I mean, Huddersfield Town should have had a penalty or two. It didn't happen. But there you have it. So, uh, these are the big games this week. And now we get ready for these World Cup qualifiers. And uh, more so from an American perspective, we'll get closer to finding out who is going to be the United States' first opponent as uh, Scotland and Ukraine play. Was that, I think, on July 1st. We'll talk to that about... We'll talk to that. We'll talk about that with Derek coming up here because uh, it's very interesting. And Ukraine, how are they? I mean, how are they going to respond to this? It's going to be interesting. It's uh, we, we, a good day for American soccer and Nottingham Forest with their American owner. Fantastic. And another owner in there. Uh, it, it, I mean, how many owners do we have? It's, it's got to be eight or nine, right? Let's go over it really quickly. Possibly Chelsea, Liverpool, Arsenal, Manchester United, Fulham, Nottingham Forest. I can't remember anymore. I'm, I'm doing this at night. Because of these flight delays, I'm doing this podcast at 11 o'clock Pacific time. So my brain, which uh, at my, my old age doesn't work as great as it used to, works even worse. So I'll leave that as, as it is. We'll get into the business end right now with Derek Ray. Rate review, leave a rating, tweet it to me at Max Bredos Sports, and you'll be in the sweepstakes for a prize. I'm not, I'm not screwing around. There'll be a prize for you. I'll pick someone. We need some ratings here, okay? We've got to do this together. All right? Are we on the same wavelength? Good. Let's go. back here on the soccer og and it's hard for me to call myself the soccer og when i'm joined by derek ray who really is derek this is audio i saw a reaction on your face but i will say this when i started looking for this sport in american tv there was nothing there was a monday the only thing i remember that wasn't spanish language which i watched a fair bit was a monday light monday premier league game on espn with you and tommy smith and I remember it fondly because for some reason, Southampton was on every week. And that's when I first got exposed to the Premier League. And Matthew Letizia became my favorite player because I don't know if I was wrong. It was like he was on every Monday. Am I, am I crazy? No, not really, Max. Those were the days for, for many fans in the USA. And you're right. I mean, we were broadcasting not just to the USA, but to the wider world, not really knowing who was actually watching, but it is incredible how many loyalties in the USA have been spawned by that. I still talk to, to West Ham fans. West Ham seem to be on quite a lot on Mondays as well. West Ham fans who became West Ham fans because of those Monday games on ESPN in the 90s. But that was the only game that aired, right? I mean, 
because this was before streaming and everything. And obviously getting on Saturday, Sunday, ESPN was close to impossible because you're dealing with college football, everything. So that Monday game seemed like the one spot, the one piece of real estate that soccer could get back then. I would say it was one of maybe two or three. The other one at that time you might remember was actually Dutch football that was on a Sunday morning in the United States. And that had a loyal following as well. And of course, we're talking about the era of that great Ajax side. If you look at the Ajax team from the mid 90s, all the great players who played for Ajax back then, you know, Edgar Davids and Patrick Kluivert and the list goes on. Uh, So, yeah, um, I think it depends when you grew up. But certainly the 90s, you know, would go down as a bit of a barren period. But you had these little, um, you know, time periods, Monday with English football and for some people Sundays with uh, the Dutch Eredivisie. And now we're having the Champions League on CBS. You're having the Premier League. It's, it's the, the last, just the sport of the, the growth of the sport still has a long way to go, I think with success on the national team level, maybe participation, although it's all improving. But I think on the media side, you've seen uh, a thousand percent rise in how it was. And I, I will just to follow up on what you said. And when I did Fox soccer channel, which kind of came up a little bit after I saw yeah. you doing champions league as well. I should mention the champions league as well as uh, the Monday night football. Then I would, uh, I would do that, those games. And I was, broadcasting and i was pretty confident that i was broadcasting to an audience of maybe five people and i've discovered later in life and i'm sure you have that's not the case and people got onto it really early and i'm not talking about millions and millions but enough people that you're walking in an airport or in a store and you run into them and they go that was important to me and sometimes they're very young and they are they may have watched it when they're 12 now they're 25 30 years old or just somebody who said that this was their entry point. And that blows me away. And I know it obviously has to have the same effect for you. Yeah, I think that's certainly something that happened back then. People had to get their start with the sports. And you're right to mention Champions League. That was the other mainstay of ESPN, what you did at Fox Soccer Channel with the Premier League and your colleagues there. And yeah, I mean, if you're a, a person, say, in his or her, I don't know, early 30s in the USA now, there would have been that starting point, uh, whenever it was, whether it was with Champions League, whether it was with the Premier League. And, yeah, I always get a kick out of it when somebody says, oh, I remember that Champions League final that you broadcast from Istanbul, funnily enough, the, the classic 2005 final, Liverpool against Milan. I think that was an entry point for many because, of course, it was fairly high profile at the time. It was supposed to be a cakewalk for Milan and looked as though it was going to be. And then Liverpool came back and did the impossible. So that would be one example. And yeah, it's always, you know, really uh, wonderful to hear from people who didn't know much about the sport back then, but, you know, randomly saw this one game and got hooked on it, really. That's amazing, Derek, because it's, it's one game and it's, and I think as broadcasters, and I'll tell this to the incredible group that are broadcasting the game there is, oh, and I know they're thinking about this, but keep that in mind because something you could be part of, something that you could reach out uh, with your, your words could put the hook in a, a fan that could become a fan for life. And you can't really do that in, in Europe where fans are out of the womb and you know this is part of their identity. But in the United States, there's something that and it's a it's a it's a very satisfying feeling if you could do that somehow as a broadcaster. 
Yeah, I mean, and you don't take that for granted at all. No. But what you said earlier is also true. When you are broadcasting, you don't really know how many people are watching. Sometimes, you know, it, um, you know, in the tens of thousands or more, sometimes it can literally be a handful. But that's when you don't really change your approach. And I've always viewed it as I'm talking to one person and I've had in my mind that one person. It can change from game to game. But that's what I always do. I think if one person, perhaps, who I know is watching, could be a family member, could be a friend. And I think if you take that approach to it, then hopefully it will be applicable to, to the wider public and to the uh, hopefully tens of thousands or more who are watching. That, ma that matters. I think I did a 2 a.m. tape delayed Chilean game in English between yeah. Aldax Italiano and Palestino. And I was pretty sure that it would have been the one fan there. But I still I, I remember that game. And I, I said to myself, you, 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 you don't take any shortcuts. You provide the very best going yeah. forward with that. Are, are you surprised with the progress of the sport on the media front? I mean, at a, a click of a button, you could go to any league. And, uh, you know, Derek, a, a phenomenal work, obviously, with the Bundesliga. But, I, I, Derek, I really enjoyed your, your La Liga work as well. And uh, being able to call a league which – which in many ways was in transition. I'd love to get your thoughts on that as I, I double barrel this question, but a league that was in transition with Barcelona and Real Madrid with their financial issues and maybe the end of the era with Diego Simeone. And then you get a league that suddenly is uh, so compelling moving forward. Xavi does this, this job and a half, which no one could have expected to make Barcelona a Champions League team again and competing in the Europa League. And Real Madrid obviously wins the Champions League final. Sevilla, Betis, so many other. Real Sociedad are, are good watches. And then I get very excited for the next year of La Liga, which I think is going to compete with the Premier League because I guess there's always that, that feeling that Premier League is going to detach from everyone else because of the money. But to double barrel the La Liga question, but your thoughts on that, but also just the consumption or what's at your fingertips as a fan for this sport in the United States. Well, I have to go all the way back to the mid-90s again. I first arrived in America uh, in the early 90s, and um, people may not know this, but I was one of the press officers for the World Cup in 1994. That was my first real entry into the world of U.S. soccer and what the dynamic was at that time. And when I compare and contrast the situation back then with the situation now, uh, it, it truly is astonishing because... I think younger people are not maybe fully aware of how barren the landscape was back in the 1990s. And of course, our goal as organizers was to put on a successful World Cup. But as press officer, I was also trying to point the media in the right direction with regard to the sport generally. And it was very difficult because there was very limited coverage. Uh, it was to use the word I used earlier on, rather random. You might get on a Spanish language channel, the odd game here and there. If you had pay-per-view at your disposal, you might be able to watch some English football. I was lucky enough to live in the Italian section in Boston, the North End. So I got Serie A every week. That was my diet of football, was to go to the local coffee shop on a Sunday morning and wonderful days and, and watch. <laughs> you paint the picture very well, Derek. I could see you at the coffee shop watching <laughs> Bologna versus... Inter and soaking yeah, it all right. in. Yeah, that's what I was doing back then. So, um, you know, without being long-winded about it, now we, we go to a situation here in 2022 whereby you can watch anything in the USA. And I think this is something that 
if I can put it this way, some fans in the USA don't quite realise, and they don't quite realise how lucky they are. And I would even contrast that with the situation here in Europe. I'm talking to you from Europe at the moment. And it's much harder to find games here. And if you can find games, then you're probably going to have paid quite a lot of money for the privilege. Whereas in the USA on a Saturday morning, uh, on the East Coast, obviously a bit more advantageous than the West Coast, but you can do it if you're an early riser on the West Coast. Uh, you have all this great football, and it's actually quite affordable compared to other parts of the world. And I think this is the one thing that people don't get. I often talk to American fans who think that they're missing, they're somehow missing out on this or that, and we don't get this here, and we don't get this analysis here. And I'll say, I, actually, I, I think you get pretty much... Um, everything that anybody else gets and then some, you know, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, my great love, the Bundesliga, whether it's La Liga, which you've mentioned, whether it's the Premier League, whether it's Serie A now, the colleagues at CBS, um, you know, go down the list, whether it's the Champions League, whether it's MLS, you, you can watch anything, whether it's women's football, it's there. And I think that is the problem nowadays, that you are so spoiled for choice. It's a matter of where you... Um, focus your attention. And I think this is where MLS maybe suffers a little bit. Uh, by the time MLS comes along on a Saturday, for many people, um, can I put it this way? You've seen about six hours of footy. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I, I speak to a lot of people, and I know I do this myself. If I've been uh, immersed in the game all day, it gets to be seven o'clock in the evening, and uh, at home we might say, let's let's watch a good movie now, you know, um, let's go and do something else. So I think that is one of the challenges. Uh, but it, it's you know, if you like, a, an inevitable challenge because this is the world sports, and uh, in the USA you have the option of watching all these fantastic leagues from around the world. There is a very is it's a good feeling. I'm on the West Coast. I'll watch all the European soccer, and by noon, I'm off the clock, so to speak. I still yeah. watch Liga MX and MLS, and I, but I can turn off the TV a little bit and then tell the wife, let's go have lunch, let's go to the beach. That's, very, <laughs> that's no minor detail. I think that's a, a very uh, desirable part of it all with regards to the American fan, and, and it's a huge challenge for MLS. I know there's news about their media package day-to-day. -day. I don't like to look into much to it because it, I, working for LAFC, it, I have countless conversations with people involved. No one knows, but it's a, it's a challenging situation. I know the league is going to, it's going to be a huge success. I, I always say it's, it's, it's still in diapers. It's a league that's still in diapers. So we're, they're making decisions for a league that's obviously being uh, looked at like it's a lot more mature. So uh, that's obviously something that it will rectify it. I don't know how soon at this point, but hopefully it's, it's sooner than later. You, you mentioned about getting in. When you started calling games, did you did you see this? I mean, you could have never foreseen the position you're in now, but as you said, for lack of a better word, you didn't use this or I would, but there's scraps. There's here and there. You can call the games and you're like, all right, but there's no uniformity. There's no regularity where you can really lure in an audience. So it had to, it had to feel like an uphill battle. So I, when you started doing, how did you see, how did you perceive this as a profession at that point? Well, it was sort of the other way around for me because obviously I'm from Scotland and I got my big break in Scotland at the age of 19. And when you're broadcasting in Scotland, broadcasting football, you're broadcasting something that really matters to people. So uh, immediately for me, that was the big transition, going from being a basically a little boy to then having to grow up quickly on the air, knowing that, um, you know, 
my every word would be held against me if I happened to, to say it the wrong way, you know, five years working for the BBC in Glasgow. And then, of course, I moved to the USA. And then you realize that your job is quite different in the USA, that it is a minority sport, or it was back then, um, that you are really trying to evangelize a little bit. You are trying to, to spread the gospel of the sport that you love, that's dear to your heart, but you know that a lot of people don't quite get. And as I said, that has changed a lot, thankfully, in the USA. But back then, it was quite difficult. And, and you really did have to use all your powers of persuasion to try to sell the sport to people. And uh, I suppose that was a little bit difficult initially. But I think that with, and it's interesting you mentioned MLS. Of course, I was uh, in the early years of MLS, I was doing the games in, in Boston for the New England Revolution. And I sense that even with a, a very bad team, and they were particularly bad, it would have to be said, the first two or three years of them. <laughs> there were some shockers out there. Yeah, that was a challenge in itself for a commentator uh, who had grown up being told that you always should be honest about what's in front of you. That was a real challenge because uh, what was in front of me was was not great football. Um, but I still sense that there was a kind of an interest in in knowledge and in the Boston area and in and, and people becoming more um, associated with their local team. And... Um, it, it just sort of changes with each passing year. I went back to the UK for almost a decade to, to work, first of all, for ESPN UK and then for BT Sport. When I came back in 2017, um, it struck me that the, the audience was just an awful lot more sophisticated, that it had, had taken several positive turns. I think, you know, we certainly credit our, our friends at NBC for what they've done with the Premier League. Um, the only thing I, 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 that doesn't sit so well with me with the Premier League culture is, and listen, I watch the Premier League. It's not the league I cover so much anymore. But there's an idea that somehow that is football and the rest of it is somehow not quite of the same stature. And I always think that's dangerous territory because the great thing about our sport is it is a world sport. And one of the things I try to bring through in my commentaries is the culture in that particular country. And I can probably succeed with that more uh, with a league like the Bundesliga because I speak the language, because I've lived there and spent a lot of time there, um, you know, try to bring that across. But um, I will say that if you reduce it to just the Premier League and English football having the culture and nobody else has this culture. I think, frankly, you're missing out because that's the, uh, the beautiful, thing, beautiful thing. And you know this, Max, um, covering South American football is that every club has its own story. And that story is within the context of that particular country. I know there was some criticism about the Champions League because when Real Madrid won, there was... the. It, it was more of an English per, English perspective, and they're, they're the, they're, they did a wonderful job. But there was about level playing fields where you watch enough of La Liga, where you watch the Bundesliga, where you watch Liga, and where you watch PSG games, so that you can have. And, and that's not a fault on anyone. That's just we've always had it from that perspective, and it's worked. But I think now when you see this, it's got to have a, a good balance, and that's where I think you can really educate yourself as a fan. So you can you can see that more frequently. I, I I think the Premier League has been as good as it's been in many years. I, when I look back at Leicester, I don't think Leicester City could happen now. When you look at Man City and Liverpool, and obviously Chelsea winning it last year, the Champions League, and the money is obviously a big part. I, I imagine Newcastle is going to be a team that's going to and and I I know neither one covers much. It's hard not to watch the games because of the presentation and just the players that are in there. It's it's good as it's been for me in uh, the last ten years. I I, I, mean, I 
I remember it was like a while where the Premier Leagues would get a Premier League team would get into a semifinal of a Champions League, let alone a final. But now that they've they've done that and had success and had two teams in a final a couple times along the way, it's good to see the balance because that's why I want to watch a Champions League. You want to see those cultures clash, and it was it was yeah. wonderful for Real Madrid. And Liverpool, because two giants of the club, two very different, two very different fan bases meeting together in a final. Yeah, and I have never been a fan of finals in European competition involving two teams from the same country. That's the worst. That's not the worst, but it's like it's so much better this way. Well, you know, we can see that any old week and you do have that cultural clash. It's just so much more invigorating. And of course, Real Madrid, you know, are the European Cup Champions League more than any other club. And it's going to take a <laughs> almighty effort from anybody to dethrone them. And they did it this time the, uh, the less uh, pleasing way in terms of aesthetically pleasing. But they did it. And Real Madrid this season have found a way of mentioned this earlier, I've watched them a lot in La Liga. And there is something about this squad that they're not, I don't think top to bottom, they're the best squad in Europe or anything like that. But they have been extremely well coached by Carlo Ancelotti. They've relied on Karim Benzema and Vinicius Junior when it's come to big moments. And then in the final, they relied on Thibaut Courtois, who certainly is going to be inextricably associated with this final, this particular 2022 final forever. And... You know, I, I do think that, that culture is really important with, with football. And this is why, for example, the Europa League this season, the final between Eintracht Frankfurt and Rangers, I think was pleasing to so many. And it's interesting, uh, interesting, Eintracht Frankfurt spoke about the fact that they didn't want Leipzig as their opponents in the final for the same reasons, but also because uh, Leipzig are not a traditional club, whereas uh, Eintracht are. But Eintracht against Rangers, that would have been the sort of final we would have got when I was growing up in the 1970s. And if you look back at some of the great European finals, then you had clubs like that, you know, storied clubs with great names from the past, um, getting to finals and winning European trophies. So uh, I, I think that there are many different ways to, to have a final that can be appetizing to people. And this season, we've certainly had that. Those Eintracht fans, I, I wasn't quite prepared to see that yeah. and in Barcelona against West Ham. And then in the final as well was uh, absolutely breathtaking. And we just to circle back, I, I'm a West Ham fan, and maybe it was those Monday night games. I know it, it was also because I loved Paulo Di Canio, who was an amazing player who came a little bit after. And I'm a big Iron Maiden fan, and Steve Harris, the bass player, had a West Ham bass, which every time I saw him in the concert, I saw that. So I did the math, and I brought it together. Uh, by the way, what, you, what is your Scottish team? I know you've told me this before, but I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Oh, I never hide that. I'm, I'm from Aberdeen. I'm actually talking to Aberdeen right now, and they have always been my team. There's never been any doubt about it. My father first took me when I was five. I used to be a regular every single game, and of course, little did I know in the seventies that I was actually watching the team that was about to become History. the best in Europe. Yeah, about ten years later, under a guy called Alex Ferguson. I've always wondered that starting eleven. Can you can you rattle off that starting eleven for Aberdeen back then? I bet you could. Also from the the Cup Winners Cup uh, side, the beat, beat Bayern and Real Madrid. Uh, quarterfinal and final, respectively. Yes, absolutely. Jim Layton in goals. Kennedy was normally the right back, but he was injured for the final. So, Doug Rugby, Alec McLeish, Willie Miller, John McMaster, Neil Simpson, Neil Cooper, uh, Gordon Strachan, Pete 
Bia, Mark McGee, uh, Dougie Bell played a lot of the time in those days. Who have I missed out? I probably missed out somebody who's going to be cross with me, but that was pretty much the team. That's amazing. Uh, Willie Miller's the one I remember, because I, I kind of got an entry point to the sport then. I have a friend who's from Aberdeen. His father was in the oil business. Yep. So he was there in Aberdeen and he he was kind of my gateway to that. And he had a he would talk about it and then he we he pull up the YouTubes and we'd watch it. and I go, Willie Miller for some reason stuck out stood out to me. The those big curly locks and he had a mustache, correct? Am I thinking of the right player? Yeah. Yes, okay. he, he was he was our captain and uh, iconic figure. And, and in fact, it, it's very iconic the way he held aloft the Cup Winners' Cup. Most captains simply sort of hold it into the air. If you actually go and look back, he's the only one I've seen it. And uh, it, it was almost like, as though he, he looked like the Messiah. He did it with with his arms stretched kind of like that, you know, into the, the Gothenburg night. And um, yeah, of course, I've met him many times since then. And he's a great guy and, uh, and a legend, the great Willie Miller. That is brilliant. And this, the Scottish game has given us so much. I, I, I was going to mention that the Scottish culture is so important to me. Working at Fox under Dermot McQuarrie, I saw that. And then people like you, Derek, and so, that, were, that make you admire what happened in that, that league. Even though the, you don't have these moments of Celtic and Rangers, whoever it might be, you do have these fan cultures and everything about it. And it's a very important foundation in the big picture of things. And I appreciate it greatly. You obviously have a love for Germany as well. And I wanted to talk to you or ask you about the American influence there because it's been, it's been massive with player development. We saw Christian Pulisic get his start at Borussia Dortmund, move up to Chelsea. And even though he's been criticized to, to a minor degree here because of the huge responsibility at Chelsea, it's been a huge success winning the Champions League and getting games along alongside this star-studded squad and just playing for Dortmund and Chelsea. And this is not just about Christian Pulisic, but looking at the players in Germany, it's worked in many ways. In some other cases, it hasn't quite clicked. When you, when you see the width and breadth of American players in Germany, uh, what, what comes to mind as to the, how it's helping the American experience for these players and also for eventually the national team who are convening right now in Cincinnati preparing day-to-day -day closer to the World Cup? Well, I always like to say that, in my opinion, and it is just my opinion, but it's based on observing American players in Germany over a long period of time now, it's the best school you can have. There is no better school. And why do I say that? Well, I think as an American player going to Germany, you know you are going to get a chance. You know it's going to be hard. You are taken outside your comfort zone, and I mean that linguistically, culturally, on all levels. I remember Owen Hargreaves, who's not American. Um, he's you know brought up in Canada, but I remember Owen telling me years ago, he said, there is nowhere, there would have been nowhere better for me than Bayern because I had to learn everything the hard way and nothing was given to me, but at the same time, it was supportive. And you know, I think if you contrast that with a country like England, if I, an American player were to go to England at a young age, the odds would be stacked against him. And you would end up not really having light at the end of the tunnel. You would end up being sent on loan somewhere else and then somewhere else after that. And I, I just don't think it's as good for the development. If the player is good enough, eventually he might go to England, as has happened with Christian Pulisic. But I think that uh, Germany is very open to young players from America. There is that pipeline now. There are connections with multiple clubs, and we're seeing it over and over again. And I think it, it does 
give the, the young American player hope that if he performs well, he's got to perform well. You're not going to be given anything just because you happen to be there. But if he performs well, then there is a pathway into the first team. I think where American fans find it difficult is I think some have become a little bit blasé about it and have sort of become overly expectant. And they think that if an American player isn't in the first team after a few months, there's something wrong, you know, and there's something wrong with that club because why are they not seeing the uh, the brilliant qualities of this player? No, I mean... I, we, we've got I, the U.S. Go- we have the U.S. goggles on over here, Derek. What can I tell you? <laughs> well, sometimes I think that's true. And sometimes I think, well, well, this is not every American fan, but there are some American fans out there who view everything through the prism of the American player and they're not necessarily watching the team that he's playing for closely and assessing the other players in the squad and the competition within the squad and the tactics that they're deploying and all the rest of it. But listen, it's natural if you're American, you want American players to succeed. But I still think that it is the best place by and large for American players to learn. And clearly many agree because they're doing it in record numbers at young ages going over to Germany. As an American national team fan, I'm pretty satisfied about what the Bundesliga has provided for these American players. Obviously, there's some guys that just haven't got it going. I, I, Justin Che, who's still very young, but can't get, didn't get off the bench at Hoffenheim, but Chris Richards did. So Bayern Munich gave him a pathway. I know there's some Wolfsburg players that it's been a club where it, it, it's had some question marks with the development of American player without, without rhyme or reason. I don't know what it is, but th- that's something that comes up. But, you know, you have the Joe Scally success story. You know, George Bellow got some minutes, even though they got relegated at Bielefeld. There are, there's enough there to really give you confidence and, 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 and a big jolt that it's a big part of the preparation for the, the, the squad that we have over there for the U.S. team. Um, I want to ask you, and you could follow up on that. You, you've seen John Brooks as well at, at Wolfsburg and playing there. With, and maybe we're not privy to everything that's happening between him and Greg Berhalter, but should he be there? Should he, should he be there with the national team? When you look at his form and what he can provide? I'll give you my honest opinion, Max. Yes, he should be. John Brooks should be part of the U.S. squad. Now, I think it's important to analyse the past season. It wasn't great for Brooks, but it wasn't a total write-off either. I think it was slightly misconstrued in the United States. He had a particularly bad patch around November into December, lost his place for a couple of games, but he regained his place. And I I watched a lot of Wolfsburg last season, and he was probably the best of their defenders. And he was still doing what John Brooks has always done. Uh, Namely, he was a calm presence, left-footed, somebody who can pass from the back. And... I just feel he's somebody who the U.S. will need in Qatar. Now, why do I say that? I say that because if you think about the games at the World Cup, this is not CONCACAF. Now, in CONCACAF, the USA will, will sit much higher and try to dictate the terms. There are going to be times, and I hope American fans listening will agree with this, there are going to be significant times at the World Cup when the USA is up against technically superior opponents, when the USA is not going to dictate the terms. And that is when, to me, you need a defensive general. You need somebody who's been around, and John Brooks has been around now. You know, He's not an old footballer. You know, He's in his late 20s, but he's a very experienced footballer who's been playing at a high level now on a week-to-week basis for a long time. And I still think that should count for something. So for me... Um, 
and I actually said this on air, I did Boris Boag's last game of the season for the World Feed with Stefan Freund, and we were talking about Brooks because it was the emotional goodbye. He's leaving Boris Boag, as you know, for a destination as yet unknown. But um, we both said, yeah, there is somebody who, you know, without knowing the inner workings of the U.S. national team, there is somebody who just on the face of it, when you have a big squad and you need a big squad, should be there. And um, I know he's passionate. He gave me a statement, actually, um, back in March at a time when he hadn't been named in the U.S. squad um, once again. And he spoke about his passion for the, the national team and about how he accepts the decision for now, but he will not accept that he can't play his way back into the reckoning. And he even said that he feels his American identity is at stake. So, you know, anybody who thinks that John Brooks doesn't care, um, you know, forget that notion. He's somebody who cares, you know, deeply about playing for the USA. And I have to say, you know, as commentators, we try to be impartial, but there's a big part of me that really hopes that John Anthony Brooks succeeds and is going to be with the USA in Qatar. If you don't follow Derek, uh, not only just on social media, but on his editorial side where he provides that for American players. And that's why I wanted to ask about the Bundesliga because Derek, you're an incredible resource. I've, I read that article and all of all that we can have that connection. I think it's invaluable for the American experience here because as you have seen, that is growing by leaps and bounds. And there's a voice for the American fans. Sometimes it's, there's disagreement. Sometimes yeah. it can't be aligned. And sometimes a little bit far-fetched. But it's it's a voice nonetheless, which I think we really have to um, encourage and embrace. Uh, and that's a very good point you make about John Brooks. I, if I could just follow up, because you had a chance to see the short sample size for Ricardo Pepe. And yeah. I'm excited about the fact that he has a preseason. There's going to be a new manager. I, I didn't follow enough Augsburg to know what happened uh, on his departure, but there is a chance him for, and he's not been called into this squad, which I think is, seems like a wise choice. He has to focus on his club right now. This is a, it's a huge responsibility for a teenager, but it is a big spot for him, whether he's ready or not, this is it. He has to grasp it preseason and getting into the fabric of a club. How have you seen how he has played and how his future might look? Well, I, I think if we're being honest, he's been disappointing so far. Sure. And, you know, he's had a couple of, decent moments, but for the most part, um, you look at Pepe and you sort of think, okay, this is not a player at the moment anyway. Who's and, and his playing time diminished as the season wore on. He'd get some minutes and then yeah. he got less and less. He didn't even get off the off the bench in the final game. So it, it did go backwards for him there uh, in those final weeks. Yeah, and I think, you know, you have to remember that Augsburg were in a relegation fight throughout the time that he was with the club in the second half of the season. And he was also up against stiff competition from very experienced players. And in particular, Michael Gregorich, Austrian international, really hit form in a way that uh, meant he, he wasn't going to lose his place. And then you have other people like Florian Niederlechner, Andre Hahn, people have been around the Bundesliga. And when you're in a relegation fight, you're often going to rely on, on seasoned players like that and not a young American who's new to the league. Uh, what I would say is you do need the betting in time. I spoke to Joe Scally about this uh, in Gladbach, and it was different. Scally joined Gladbach amid no fanfare at all. Nobody really knew who he was. I would even say in the USA, not many people actually knew who he was. So he was able to join quite quietly, uh, adjust, play with the, the youth teams, get used to training, get used to the language and the culture a little bit. Pepe didn't have that. He had to arrive in a blaze of glory with interviews. And of course, um, I'm not sure that he helped himself 
completely with some of the answers he gave. I don't think it's great to be going and talking about Augsburg being in the Champions League and trying to help them do that. You know, listen, I understand the dream aspect of it. Americans are dreamers <laughs> that way. But that's where I always say, you know, just get your head down. You know, just just go there and 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 forget, you know, fanciful notions of what you're going to do in three, four years' time. Just get used to the new environment. And I think that's good advice for every newcomer in the Bundesliga. You're right, Max. He's going to have a different set of circumstances come the summer. Um, Augsburg are a little bit in turmoil. They, they stayed up by the skin of their teeth. Um, and, you know, we'll see what opportunities he gets. I mean, there are no guarantees. You've got to do it on the training pitch, first of all. And, um, you know, they're the sort of club who, at the start of every season, there's always somebody who says Augsburg are going down. Uh, and it hasn't happened uh, more than a decade now. Uh, perhaps one of these years it will happen. But this is going to be a very important year for Ricardo Pepe. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. People say, oh, well, he made the wrong move in going there. I'm not sure we can necessarily say that. He simply made that move and... You know, he couldn't really get close to a team that was struggling. So sometimes you just need a bit of time. Sometimes I will say, not necessarily in the case of Pepe, but I think it's underestimated by some American fans playing in the Zweite Bundesliga, the second division, how beneficial that can be for a young player. And I think about Josh Sargent last season. And on my Twitter feed, uh, I, I got many people talking about this and saying, oh, he needs to get out of that ridiculous club, how bad they are. I was actually of the mind that it would have been good for a player like that to be in the second division to get more opportunities to play and to score. And that's all part of development. So it's not necessarily the case that you go to a high-level club and you immediately prosper. I think Matthew Hoppy would probably agree as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's another one. did yeah. not get off the bench for Mallorca. It was, it yeah. was puzzling because he was always there and it's he must have known you're not getting in these games, which has to be so difficult for a young player where he had an option to play with some regularity and we talked about this at the beginning and this is why i love this sport derek because i watched augsburg games because ricardo pepe joined the club so i'd watch the games i'd get up early and the one thing i take away from it is mikhail gregorich is pretty <laughs> it's yep. pretty solid i was like this gregorich guy is good i've never yeah. i haven't seen him enough and now i've seen like four games of him yeah. so i enjoyed that as a fan exposing and finding out more about a club and it's it's a it's a it's a very satisfying feeling yeah and i think you know briefly on that i think what you've just said with gregovic you know maybe an unheralded player to many but an austrian international uh, was at the euros with them last season this is the thing about the bundesliga it's not some you know tuppence hapney league it's a high level league and you do have to perform well to um to, to be playing week in week out this is why uh, with John Brooks, when you asked me about that earlier, the perception that Brooks somehow had an awful season with Wolfsburg, he didn't. And he had an okay season uh, in one of the best leagues in the world. I'll leave you with this because you're going to go to Hampden Park. You're going to see Scotland, Ukraine. Scotland's going to win and they're going to beat Wales. They're going to go to the World <laughs> Cup and they're going to face the United States in the opening game. And you're going to have to do some homework about the U.S. team, which of which you've done much leading up to. So, Obviously, I'm not going to go in this serendipitous route here, but maybe it will be Scotland-US. But from what you've seen in the United States team, we've yeah. talked a lot about these players. What do you like? How do you see this journey going in Qatar for the group? Well, I think the thing is that you, you like about the USA, or most people would like, is the, the useful factor. I think 
Greg Berhalter has tried to introduce that and I think has had some success. And I, I think as well, we see players who are not necessarily regulars with their clubs in Europe really coming to the fore with the USA. And, you know, somebody like Miles Robinson, who uh, recently got injured and the way everybody has rallied around him, uh, you can definitely tell that there is a camaraderie within that group. So I think that they are on the up that way. Uh, you know, I think that in Pulisic and in McKenney, uh, you know, when fit, you, you have two exceptional players you know, who certainly need to be at the, the forefront of, of what the U.S. men's national team and its current guys is all about. Um, if I could maybe sort of just strike a note of caution, I think the one unknown is, and again, this is something that um, I, I think American fans sometimes live in their own bubble a bit, and it's understandable why, because you go through CONCACAF and then you're not really playing anybody else during those qualifying periods. I genuinely don't know what the gulf is going to be if there is going to be a big gulf between the USA and the teams they face at the World Cup. I don't think anybody really knows that. You know, I think you can, we can make How could you? Guesses. All right, how could you? It's... Exactly. You know, so that, you know, for example, you mentioned Scotland or Wales, you know, who could well end up as the USA's first opponents. And, you know, a lot of people have said to me, oh, the USA is much better than Scotland. Are they? I, I, I don't know. You know I, I, <laughs> who said that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I actually think it's pretty even. Um, that, that would be my perception from the outside. Uh, and obviously, I watch a lot of Scotland and I do watch the USA as well, living in America. Um, so I think that's the one thing is, again, the expectations going in. And uh, again, this is a Scot talking, not an American. But I always think that it's good to play down expectations, you know, play expectations down. And then when you surprise somebody, OK, then you surprise them. Um, but I often think in the USA, it's the opposite. Uh, and again, not with the team and not with the coach. That's not what's happening there. But American fandom is relentlessly... I'm sorry I'm laughing because it's exactly what's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, and again, I love the fans because they are optimistic. But I think sometimes a reality check is in order and you have to look at it. And so, so I mean, I, I think that it, it genuinely could go any number of ways for the USA. I think um, it, it could be um, like 2002 when they surprise, but it could just as easily be like 1998, you know, and in this group. And of course, Iran are in the group uh, again, and they are certainly no pushovers. If anybody thinks that Iran are a weak team that are there to be uh, beaten This up is a better that. Iran team than 98. That's right. I think with, with some some distance, and they're playing. Yeah. I don't know how it. I don't know how it's going to play. But they're playing close to home as well. Yeah. So so I think it's. Uh, it, this is why we love the sport. We we genuinely don't know. I genuinely don't know how it's going to go for the USA. Uh, as I say, John Brooks for me should be in the sport. So for what it's worth, uh, I'm, I'm I'm sure that uh, everybody has his or her own opinion on that. But it's going to be fascinating to see how the USA fares, especially in that opening game, if it were to be against Scotland. From my point of view. Uh, wise, wise words, Derek, <laughs> about Scotland and also about the caution. And I think I've seen some, I don't want to say flaws, but some, some areas with which require work for a young team, which I, I think is, is, can be acceptable for if in fact, this is a 2022 where they learn some lessons. There's something wrong with that for the, what could be the youngest team. I believe it is going to be the youngest team at the world cup. That's going to be at the world cup. We know they're going to be there in 2026. And I, I like Greg Berhalter building, something connecting those two squads. Maybe it's good for self-preservation purposes for him that he's kind of getting ahead to building to 2026. But I've seen some areas where I'm like, 
and I, I quite frankly, I, I say, I, I think we, there's an American spirit. We see it every world cup, even 98, where they kind of were at least in stretches, they were, they were competitive. And then that one, I guess is a bit of an outlier. We should say, yeah. I think I was thinking of 2006, 98 doesn't really apply, but um, there's that American spirit, but there's a, an ability where they could hang with the English, for instance, in that second game, or there could be just, it could be, <laughs> I mean, this is the best England team I've ever seen. I've, I mean, I've done it for a long time, and we always say it's coming home. I go, it, it could come home. They've proven it. So this could be a competitive game. I, I, I don't think anything's – I don't. If, if USA wins it, it's the shock of the tournament. But by and large, it could be competitive, or it could be a convincing England win, to put it mildly. Yeah, it certainly could. I, I agree with what you say. Uh, England are the big favorites in the group. Um, this is a very different England. I mean, I've – you know, like yourself, been around long enough to to have heard various different England teams talked up way beyond their abilities. But this is one that's pretty good. And I think genuinely in the conversation with regard to the countries that could win the World Cup. But I think after England, um, I, I think if you were, you see, it's quite interesting. Um, I think many US fans think that then the US is the clear second favourite in the group. But I think if you talk to fans of other countries, they would see it as England are the clear favourites. And then it's eeksy-peeksy between the others, really. It could go any which way. Um, and that, that really is my opinion, that, that the, 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 the chips may fall in, in any direction um, with regard to that. And, of course, we don't know who the USA will play in the first game. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's open to question. But I think that, you know, we'll find out just how mature they are, how ready they are. And CONCACAF is just a very different exercise. I'm not diminishing CONCACAF. It, it, it has its own unique challenges. But the fact of the matter is, for the USA not to qualify from CONCACAF would have been a surprise. I know it happened last time, but it would have been against the grain of expectation and the abilities of the squads. Here we're talking about squads who are not CONCACAF. You know, we're talking about squads who have come through it through a different route. And so, yeah, we're going to find out plenty. I have six months of nerves working against me. Thank you very much, Derek. <laughs> but as, as I say, that first game is key. And yeah. whoever it is, the U.S., that's the one will determine how well they do it. Whatever happens, they're at the World Cup, and they've got to get the most of it. Derek, absolutely delightful to talk with you. I will say this before we got on the air. I've, I mentioned, I think, some of you folks on this podcast about my European trip. Derek's been graceful enough to give me some tips. Obviously, if I'm going to Germany, he's the man to ask. So top guy, Derek Ray, and appreciate your time, my friend, joining me all the way across the Atlantic. Oh, thank you, Max. Great fun. Great fun to chat to you. And do enjoy your trip to Germany. And I look forward to hearing all about it when you get home. You can count on it. Best of luck uh, to uh, Scotland on the first of the month. That is Derek Ray here in the business. And we'll be right back to talk about USA Morocco here in stoppage time next. United States prepare for this. This is the biggest window ahead of the World Cup. They'll have some time in September. I'm gonna give credit. I saw a tactical manager out there who I've been, who's been on uh, my my podcast in the past, and I think they got a, a a feeler out that USA could play Qatar in September. But I'm not talking about September. June is where it's at. You're not gonna get games like this. You're gonna get four games. You're gonna get all these players together, starting on June the first with the United States taking on Morocco in Cincinnati. 
I grew up in Miami. I know I said this before, but Don Shula, the Dolphins coach, every time they played the Bengals, always called them Cincinnati. And I just, <laughs> just can't grasp it. So I started calling him Cincinnati. I mean, there's an I at the end. I don't know why you call him Cincinnati. But I'll say this, Don Shula was from Ohio. So he should be an expert on how you say Cincinnati. So I'm going with, I'm going with uh, Coach Shula. And I know the young people on this podcast are going, who the heck is Coach Don Shula? I talked to an uh, a, uh, LAFC player, Danny Masovsky. We did an interview on the LAFC, and it was during the pandemic, and he was in the Orlando bubble. And I go, what did you do today? And he goes, well, we ate at this place called Shula's. I go, you know who Shula is? I go, no, it was just a steakhouse. That's why you got to build restaurants with your name on so it can stand the test of time. You want people to remember you. Don Shula, I remember you. So the United States will play Morocco and Cincinnati. We'll focus on that because I am going to be joined by Christopher Sullivan. Our podcast for the World Cup draw was top three all-time performing podcasts. So I'm going to bring him back. And I'm not just doing it because of the performing, but it was the World Cup. But I get the feeling you guys love some more Suli. You want some more Suli. You love Winalda. You want some more Suli. We will do a podcast after that game, and then we'll come back after for the USA-Uruguay game on June the 5th. Keep in mind, Mexico plays Uruguay June the 2nd. So my feeling is we'll get a, a much different Uruguay team. A lot of the reserves will get in there. I mean, it's an incredible Uruguayan roster, but how many of these guys? Have you seen the Uruguayan jerseys that have been launched? Spectacular, spectacular. And Uruguay has star-studded players, but a lot of them have been kept busy. Federico Valverde in the uh, the uh, Champions League final, that ball to Vinicius. Oof. People say it was a shot. It wasn't a shot. It was not a shot. You could see from the replay behind him what he was trying to do, and he put it on a platter. Beautiful stuff. So we're going to focus on USA-Mexico, and I, I like the fact that there's not a lot of hullabaloo around the U.S. camp, which is part and parcel. That's the problem with U.S. men's national team is everything's kind of as it is, there's no arguments or uh, conflict or controversies. Maybe there should be, but you can't force the issue. I mean, there was the John Brooks not being selected, but we're not talking about that. There was certain players not being pulled in. There was Georgi Mihalovic getting injured and the U.S. not bringing in a 27th player. And, I mean, I'm just thinking it from... Greg Berhalter's perspective, if I'm managing this team and I have a good idea who the core is, and I've already picked more players than I'm, I I really need to, I mean, 27 players, you're going to play 18 guys in a World Cup setting. Maybe you play more of them because you'll have Grenada and so forth, but no one's going to get on that World Cup roster by showing up against Grenada or El Salvador. All due respect. But he didn't bring in a replacement for Georgi Mihalovic. And I'm like, okay, I guess you could. But you bring in a guy. You've already got this camp going. It's going well. Everyone's happy. There's familiarity. The World Cup is in the rear, is 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 in the, the light in that tunnel. You could see it coming up. Do I want to bring somebody? I go, no, I don't really. So you go with what your gut is. You I don't want to bring anybody. How much are they going to bet? I, I think it's overrated about how much they're going to benefit from being in this, especially at this stage. If it's qualifying where you think you can get in this World Cup process, a lot of these guys probably need some time off. A lot of the guys that weren't called in need time off. Richie Ledesma said as much. 
Guys need some time off. Ricardo Pepe probably needs some time off. So that's what this is for. So I'm fine with that. If he brought in a 27th player, I wouldn't think twice about it. But I'm thinking it from Berhalter's perspective. Like, eh, we're, we're good. I think that's what, I, I, let me put it this way. That's what I would do. I wouldn't bring in somebody. Doesn't mean I'm with the right approach, but that is. So Morocco coming in, coached by Vahid Halikhodzic, who is, I don't want to call a national team mercenary. That's a horrible thing to say. He kind of is. He is a gun for hire. Last four World Cups, I think was in this order, Ivory Coast, Japan, Algeria. He was a national team coach. And now he's a coach for Morocco. He's gotten results with those national teams. Certainly with Algeria. And with Ivory Coast. Was it Japan? I, I got to find the order of it. But he, he brings in a team. And this Morocco team is a European team for all intents and purposes. There is no Hakim Ziyech. Uh, you do have the superb Nusair Mazrahi, who's going to be coming in here. I mean, they have players all over. So you have Ashraf Hakimi of PSG, who's going to be a key player for them. And what a great player for the U.S. to watch. And, you know, a, a wide player, a wide fullback who's going to barnstorm up. Sofian Amrabat, who plays at Fiorentina. Youssef El Nezieri, who plays at Sevilla, the goalkeeper there, um, Bado. I mean, Roman Seiss, who plays at Wolves. I mean, Haditz, who plays at uh, Marseille. This is a, a fantastic team. This is a team that was in the last World Cup, didn't had one point in three games, but that was a tight group with Spain, Portugal, and Iran. They're going to be in a group with, they open with Croatia, then Belgium, and Canada. It's a tough group, but they're going to be, I'll, I'll put this about Morocco. They're going to be competitive in all three of those games. They can win all three of those games. How does that sound? I'm, I'm, I think Morocco is the best African country period, talent-wise. Not at the World Cup anywhere. I think Algeria is the one that could give them the biggest run, although Algeria is not at the World Cup. So Morocco is the best. So this is an incredible test, as is Uruguay. I would love to see Hakim Ziyech. I think that would have been a great test for the uh, U.S. fullbacks, too, to kind of see something with that that level of world class. But it's still, it's still an amazing team. This is a team that likes to get after it. Uh, they're not going to bunker down. They like to push, high press. They use their fullbacks. They use, I should say they use their wide players. And it's going to be a fun game to watch. You know, after all this, I was going to say dreck, after all these games in Central America where you travel, where, where the World Cup stakes are so high that no one wants to make a mistake. And I'm not saying this about World Cup. I saw that in the championship playoffs. The stakes are so high, no one wants to make a mistake. So the game struggles. The Champions League final, you could see the stakes. Even though Liverpool did their very best to try. Should have tried a little harder, like Camila Cabello. This is going to be a fun game to watch. What do I want to see out of it? And uh, I talked about this on my YouTube, Max Bretos. Check that out. I don't think it's in the algorithm right now because the numbers have come down. I know that sounds like an excuse, but YouTube, snap out of it. So we have... We have a, a U.S. team with some question marks. There's no doubt about it. And the big one is who we, we assume Walker Zimmerman is going to be one of center back. Who plays alongside him? Eric Palmer Brown seems like the best option to me. I would say Aaron Long is a big. I, I, I know it's going to be Aaron Long and Walker Zimmerman. By the way, I'm fine with that. We I, I'm not going to be critical about 
Greg Berhalter because defensively this team has been excellent. They had that one bad game against Canada. Other than that, they've been excellent. And Aaron Long, uh, I've known and seen him play for a long time. He's a great player. Athletic, fast, so that's that's a, that's a good development. And you, I think we're going to see a team on Wednesday that's going to shadow what, at this point, barring injuries or whatever. And by the way, Georgi Mihalovic is out. I still think he kind of, this is really bad for him, unfortunately. But I still think he has a shot to get on this team because of what he can do. But I think Greg Berhalter is going to try and get close to seeing what, this is the real dress rehearsal, right? This is the dress rehearsal as best you can. Obviously, Weston McKinney's there, but not 100%. Uh, some other players you can't lean into. Chris Richards, I think, would be in that starting 11. Sergio Dest would be in that starting 11. So elsewhere, you can kind of mimic it a little bit. Striker, number nine. I don't want to say striker. Haji Wright's there. I'd love to see Haji Wright get minutes. I would love to see Haji Wright get minutes. But it's going to be Jesus Ferreira because he has earned it because of what he's done in the qualifiers, what he's done with his... Because of what he's done with the qualifiers. Haji Wright could have earned it if he was here. He wasn't here. That's how that's how national teams work. Guy comes in here and he plays some games. He gets it. So it's going to be Jesus Ferreira who's going to start. Pulisic and Weya alongside him. Midfield's going to be Tyler Adams, Eunice Musa, Kellen Acosta. I know people want to see Luca Della Torre. But that would be against the grain based on what we saw in the last few World Cup qualifiers. And you don't just flip your fingers and go, hey, let's try this. This is a dress rehearsal. Keep it close to the best. And uh, it's uh, this is going to be a fun game to watch. So make sure you tune in here after the game. Thursday, we'll have a full Soccer OG recap on what we saw. That's all the time we have. Please rate, review. Please rate. Rate us. You might win something. Rate, review, download, subscribe, tell a friend. Check out the Soccer OG on YouTube under Max Bretos. I appreciate all of you. Good to be home and talking to you here on the podcast. Placido Domingo.